Welcome to Australia's Future with Tony Abbott. I'm Daniel Wilde from the Institute of Public Affairs. Australia is facing its most significant challenges since World War II. Geopolitical tensions are increasing. Cultural self-confidence is in decline. The values which define us, freedom, democracy, egalitarianism and sacrifice are being put to the test. Over this special podcast series, Tony and I discuss how Australia can survive and flourish in the decades ahead. Hello, Tony, and g'day to all of our listeners. Great to be back with you again and looking forward to our conversation this week. Uh, You've just got back from India and I'm looking forward to learning uh, what you were doing over there and some of your insights. Uh, We're also going to chat about the issues of government not keeping their promises and also the latest on defence and the submarine situation. So, Tony, I thought to start with we could talk about governments uh, having an inability seemingly to keep their promises. Uh, In terms of this current government, there's the broken promise on superannuation. uh, There's the broken promise on electricity prices, uh, amongst other matters. Uh, Your government was one that kept its promises to uh, stop the boats, get rid of the tax, start fixing the budget. Uh, Tony, so let's, let's start by getting your assessment of this government, the broken promises, and what that means for the electorate. Yeah, Dan, look, uh, the electorate's not stupid, and if circumstances change, I think the electorate will forgive a government that has to be straight with them and say, look, uh, when we got in, uh, we thought that we could do this. Um, we've been hit by an economic catastrophe uh, or natural disaster and we now have to do something different. I think the electorate is mature enough to understand a government that has to go and say that. And to some extent, that's what the Howard government did. Mm. You might remember that John was mocked at the time for his core and non-core promises, but he did discover that there was the $96 billion black hole, uh, to use the phrase that Peter Costello repeated over and over again, that the Howard government inherited. But uh, where there's no obvious change in circumstances and governments say one thing before an election and do something very different afterwards, I think the public are right to feel ripped off. Mm -hmm. And clearly the Prime Minister said uh, on, it seems, at least 96 separate occasions that Labor would lower your power bill by $275 per household per year on average – And plainly, that's not going to happen. Bills are going up and up and up. Uh, Also, Labor said repeatedly that they would increase real wages, and as we know, real wages are going down. Um, And it's not that circumstances have changed. Mm. Uh, The Ukraine war was well and truly underway back in May last year. Um, Global uh, gas and coal and oil prices were skyrocketing uh, during the election campaign. So... It's not like they're able to say, well, the world has changed since the election. Mm -hmm. Likewise, inflation was clearly taking off uh, from the beginning of last year. Um, And obviously, in an inflationary period, it's difficult to maintain real wages without risking a a kind of an inflationary spiral. So so these are promises that should never have been made. Uh, Labor's plan to reduce power prices it was never plausible because it was somehow dependent uh, upon more renewable energy yeah. uh, reducing prices, whereas we know that the more renewable energy you've got in the system, because it requires constant 24-7 backup, um, 
the more expensive the system is to run and the less reliable it is. So these were positive promises that should never have been made. Then, of course, there were the promises they made not to touch things which yeah. are being broken. And the super promise, I think, is particularly galling because after the family home, the thing that most people feel most protective and possessive about is their superannuation savings, the money that we are forced to put aside for many years by the government. Uh, and the idea that the government should treat our money as its personal private piggy bank, I think, is, uh, is, is abhorrent uh, to most, most voters. And, and now there's another one. They also promised that there would be um, no changes to, uh, to franking credits and there's a change in the wings for that as well. And, okay, they say that it's just about closing loopholes and ending anomalies, but anything that raises $600 million for the government uh, is obviously taking $600 million off someone else. And even if the intermediary might be public companies buying back their shares and not getting franking credits, that's money that is not going to be in the hands of uh, shareholders, mm. i.e. taxpayers. So, so look, I think this is a government which, for all its uh, um, rather good record so far on defence and foreign policy, uh, is looking pretty untrustworthy on domestic policy and in the end, uh, other than in a situation of extreme strategic crisis, most voters are fixating on domestic policy rather than defence and foreign policy. Yeah, that's right. There's a couple of threads to pick up there. But the first one, as I mentioned, is your government was one that certainly kept its promises to voters, I think, more than any other government I can remember. There was clear promises you took to the electorate to get rid of the carbon tax, get rid of the mining tax, stop the boats and start the task of budget repair, all of those things were delivered within the first 12 or so months in a very effective manner. Prices of electricity bills came mm -hmm. down immediately once the carbon tax was scrapped. So that was really critical to keeping faith with the electorate. Can you talk us and you know give us a bit of an insight into the workings of your government? Um, was that something that you were very aware of, of saying, look, we've, we've, t we've taken this to the people, they've backed us in with a landslide victory in 2013, we need to deliver now? Was that basically the message you had? Well, Dan, I'm encouraged by this line of questioning because uh, you might not remember, but I certainly do, that uh, the critique from the Labor Party and indeed from some of the Liberal premiers after the 2014 budget was broken promises. And we were actually... Joe Hockey and I, incredibly careful in the preparation of the 2014 budget not to break promises. Uh, the premiers and the, the then opposition said, oh, but there are cuts to health and there are cuts to education. Now, it's true that we were going to increase spending on health and education at a somewhat slower rate than Julia Gillard was proposing and Kevin Rudd was proposing but I specifically said pre-election that while we were committed to the then Labor government's forward estimates in both health and education, we certainly weren't going to be committed to the Gonski spending, et cetera, beyond the forward estimates. And, of course, in the 2014 budget, um, yeah. there's an extra year comes in. Yeah. Uh, and people looked at that, the last of the out years, and said, oh, look, 
um, you're spending less yeah. uh, than Julia Gillard was promising. And I said, well, exactly. I said, <laughs> I said uh, that we would only commit uh, to the Rudd-Gillard spending uh, for the then forward estimates period. And, and look, on health, um, we certainly didn't say before the election that we were going to bring in a Medicare <coughs> co-payment, but we didn't deny that we were going to bring in a Medicare co-payment. And actually, uh, we did significantly increase health spending because all of the money that we were saving in some other areas of health, we were putting into the uh, Medical Research Future Fund, which has uh, now grown to, I think, some $20 billion or so in a quantum, and that's actually uh, been quite good at helping this country to maintain its traditional edge when it comes to health and medical research. Um, we have something like 1% of the world's population, but we have at least 5% of the world's refereed uh, medical research papers. And while we haven't always been as good as we'd like to be at turning uh, our research into um, commercial successes, uh, nevertheless, we are very good at this. Yep. So look, um, I was actually extremely careful. Uh, I was um, reinforced in that by, by Joe Hockey. Uh, Joe and I were very, very careful to ensure uh, we didn't break promises, didn't stop the accusation being made, yep. uh, but we in fact didn't break promises. And look, uh, the 2014 budget... Uh, was the last serious attempt in this country to restrain the size of government. Uh, we actually uh, reduced government uh, by, I think, one percentage point of GDP uh, in that year because of our various changes. And uh, I think there was uh, uh, less discipline uh, in the government as time went by, less fiscal discipline in the government as time went by, but certainly the fact that... Um, on the eve of the pandemic, we were very close to achieving a surplus finally, is largely the result of that 2014 budget. I think that's a pretty good assessment and a fair assessment. I'd add a couple of my own opinions, not to attribute them to you, but this is my perspective on that time. There was a, a recalcitrant Senate that wasn't doing the right thing by um, the nation. And I've got to be honest, Joe Hockey, great guy, cares deeply about Australia but was not as effective as he could have been, in my view, at selling the message to the community. And I also think that a lot of the, the senior people around you didn't always back it in to the extent that they could have. Because inevitably, when you're trying to undertake reform, people are going to get upset. You're going to get pushback from the media, from the community, from people who don't like it, the rent-seeking class and everything else. It gets hot. It gets difficult. And the instinct of too many politicians is to run away from it as quickly as they can you were always someone that would run head on and take it on, whether it's the Republic, whether it's same-sex marriage. But I felt that mm. too many people around you did not sort of back you in on, on that. So that's my impression. But, I mean, you've got more of an insight, so just interested in that facet. I think there's something in that, Dan. Um, for instance, uh, I can remember having a conversation uh, with colleagues, many conversations with colleagues about how we were going to deal with the Senate and uh, – I can remember Malcolm Turnbull, just to name one, uh, volunteering to use his good offices with Clive Palmer uh, to help. And uh, famously, Malcolm and Clive had a couple of dinners that were observed by journalists. Now, I'm sure Malcolm was urging Clive 
to pass the budget. I don't imagine for a second that Malcolm would ever have been saying to Clive, look, uh, you might actually help me if you didn't pass elements of the budget. I just can't imagine that happening. So, look, uh, you're right. Um, uh, not everyone was as strong as they might have been, but still uh, that budget stands as the last serious attempt to rein in the size of government. Uh, I think it was absolutely the budget that our country needed at that time. Uh, I don't think we would have a Medicare crisis uh, if we had brought the co-payment in back then. Uh, I certainly think that our young people would be in better shape uh, if the uh, insistence that people left school to earn or learn uh, but not to go on the dole uh, had been implemented. I think if we had uh, uh, brought the rate of indexation for all social security payments uh, to CPI rather than Matawi, uh, male total average weekly earnings, I think that would have helped restrain the size of government uh, over time. And certainly there were other things that we were doing, such as the regulation repeal day, yep. uh, where we think we got uh, uh, well over $2 billion worth of annual ongoing reductions in compliance costs. Yep. Um, and that was uh, ended almost immediately. I left the Prime Ministership. I, I mean, look, the, the hallmark of a, of a coalition government uh, should be uh, the prudent, frugal management of public money. And it, it grieves me to see coalition governments uh, going out every day making spending announcements uh, because you don't build a stronger economy through government spending. Um, you don't build a more cohesive society by and large through bigger government. It's through bigger citizens. Um, I mean, the point I kept making was that uh, it wasn't government that built wealth, it was businesses and individuals that built, built wealth. And yet once we enter this mindset of government having to have an answer to everything, mm. uh, it's almost impossible to avoid this reflex spend yeah. uh, approach to things and too many governments these days in the modern West have got it. Yeah, it's a pretty good summary. Um, and I just wanted to turn back for a moment to the superannuation situation mm. as a as a prime example. Mm. Like from my perspective, it's not so much whether it's, you know, 0.1 or 0.5% or 10% of those who are at the top end that are affected. My issue with it is the double standard. You know, you've got the prime minister who's on a very handsome defined benefit scheme. He's not going to be hit by retrospective tax hikes. Uh, he's going to do very well for himself, as are many in the in Parliament and the public servants. Mm -hmm. But he's saying to everybody else, we're going to change the rules mid-game, double the tax above $3 million. To me, that's what's wrong about it, this hypocritical double standard that we see too often from, from members of Parliament. So that, you know, for what it's worth, that was my take on why it was a problem. Yeah, look, um, I mean, I'm lucky enough to be on that old uh, parliamentary super scheme myself. Yeah, but you're not trying to tax others. No, so that's I'm the difference. Not. You're, I'm, you're I'm not, not trying to take other people's I'm, money. I'm not. But but you don't say one thing before an election and do something different afterwards. And Albanese uh, couldn't have been clearer. Jim Chalmers couldn't have been clearer. Both the Prime Minister and the Treasurer couldn't have been clearer before the election that there were no changes to super, just like there were no changes to franking credits. Um because the lesson they took from the previous election that Bill Shorten had lost 
was that if Labor went in uh, mm. promising to tax retirees, tax investors, uh, there was the ability of the coalition to run an effective campaign against them. Yep. And I think to avoid that, they made promises that they had not the slightest intention of keeping. And let's see what happens to the ballot box in response. Yep, no, fair enough. Well, let's move on to the uh, submarines, nuclear-powered submarines and national uh, defence. There's been some movements over the last couple of days with an announcement that the Australian government will be investing billions into the US uh, shipbuilding industry uh, as a part of a broader deal for us to buy up five nuclear-powered Virginia-class uh, submarines uh, in a basically to tide us over until we get to the next stage of our of our shipbuilding and ship acquisition process. Look, on the face of it, this seems like a, a welcome move and a good move. We need these. Uh, we need access to these uh, submarines and and equipment immediately and as soon as possible. Um, so it looks like a good move by the government. Uh, what's your take on this matter? You're right, Dan. I think it is a wonderful uh, development and all credit to the government for running with the ball that it was passed by its predecessor. Yep. Um, by far the most important achievement of the Morrison government was the AUKUS submarine deal, yep. which was a real sign that Australia was coming of age as a serious nation and as a serious strategic player in our region and the wider world. For the first time ever, really, uh, we abandoned strategic caution uh, to say that uh, we are going to play our part as, an, as, a, as, as a sovereign nation uh, in the struggles of these times. So, so look, it was, a, it was a really good move by the Morrison government. Uh, at the time, to his great credit, Anthony Albanese backed it and uh, he's been as good as his word in government and, yes, uh, this is uh, this is a very very positive development. Um, we'll get uh, it looks uh, like uh, uh, regular U.S. and British submarine visits uh, from about 2027. Uh, in the early 2030s, uh, we'll get um, three or perhaps five Virginia class subs. Uh, from the mid to late 30s, we'll start building the evolved astute class sub with the US weapons system and that'll be a submarine in common with the United Kingdom and possibly the United States as well. Now, in the meantime, there's a lot to be done. We've got to get these uh, nuclear submarine facilities built as quickly as possible, uh, both on the West Coast and on the East Coast. Uh, we've got to start recruiting and training uh, far more submariners, particularly nuclear engineers. So, so this is a very, very big task and it will be eye-wateringly expensive. But uh, in the end, the first responsibility of government is the defence of the nation. Um, schools, hospitals, uh, social security, all important. But in the end, if you can't keep the country safe, nothing else works. So, so this is a very important investment in our future freedom and indeed in our long-term survival mm. as an independent sovereign country. And I'm pleased that it's got strong bipartisan support. 
I'm also pleased that there appears to be strong bipartisan support for the AUKUS arrangements in both Britain and the United States because it is a generational endeavour. Mm. It is absolutely a generational endeavour. It was always going to be a generational endeavour and it will have to survive changes of government in all three countries, mm. but I think now we can be reasonably confident that it will. What else do you think we should be doing on the national security front as a nation? Um well, my, my perspective is we have a real, you know, we need to bolster our sovereign manufacturing capability. One of the lessons I think from COVID is really we didn't have the capacity to produce certain, in that case, protective equipment as we needed. And I think the the vulnerability of these global supply chains, you know, the just-in-time supply, which are very economically efficient mm. until they're not, mm. until they stop working and there's disruptions. So we've got this issue with our oil reserves where we have only a couple of days' worth of oil which aren't even located in our own sovereign territory. Um, to me, there's, there's great development on this front and mm. I think it's important that that's used to build on that to address some of these other matters. One of the dangers uh, uh, is that uh, we've made this very good announcement mm. and we will just sit back now and think yes. that making the announcement is Job done. getting yeah. the thing done when... <laughs> Making the announcement is the start, not the end yep. of the process. And having made the broad decision, there's now a whole lot of little decisions that need to be made to make the big decision a reality. So there's a lot to be done on the AUKUS submarines. But then, as you say, Dan, there are all these other things that need to happen. Yeah. Uh, we, we've seen in the Ukraine uh, how quickly you can go through missiles, shells, ammunition... Um, how easy it is for your military hardware to break down and you've got to have the capability to maintain and repair all this stuff. Uh, it's, uh, it, it does require big stockpiles of equipment and it also requires a strong sovereign capability yep. uh, because in extremis you may not be able to get help from anywhere else uh, as we discovered during the pandemic when the whole world was desperate for PPE and for medicines. Uh, we all suddenly worked out that it was all coming from China and they weren't giving any of it to us. Now, we didn't do a bad job yep. improvising. Uh, for instance, all the whiskey distillers and gin distillers in this country suddenly started producing hand, uh, hand wash and we had uh, uh, ResMed, I think, turning... Uh, sleep apnea machines into ventilators and things like that. So we didn't do a bad job, but uh, there is no doubt uh, that we do need to reassess what are the things that we need to be able to do here, yep. uh, what are the essential supplies that we need to stockpile here uh, if we are to, to maintain a reasonable level of life and to maintain our national security what are the things that we can trust our friends to provide yep. and what are the things that we're prepared to uh, rely on the wider world for? And uh, I think that's an important conversation that every country needs to be having at, at senior levels and then acting accordingly. So, so one of the things that the Morrison government committed to uh, was to develop a domestic missile manufacturing capability. Yep. That announcement was made, I think, three years ago, but to the best of my knowledge, we're not much closer to doing it now than then. 
We've got these offshore patrol vessels coming, uh, 12 of them, I think. Uh, they're almost 2,000 tonnes, so they're the size of a small frigate. They've got almost no armament on them. Uh, they need to be significantly up-armoured. Uh, I think it's pretty clear that we need to get uh, uh, some uh, uh, some uh, armed drones. Mm -hmm. uh, again, that was one of the projects which uh, was cancelled by the previous government. Now, admittedly, the Ukraine war had not broken out at that stage. Uh, we hadn't seen with our own eyes the importance of drones and the effectiveness of them, uh, but there really needs to be a crash program of drone acquisition by our armed forces. And luckily, uh, we do have some very innovative people here in this country who are producing drones uh, for the Ukraine mm -hmm. and uh, others who are interested and who, are, uh, and who can be trusted with them. So uh, let's try to make good use of the ingenuity of the Australian people because we can do a lot more than we sometimes give ourselves credit for. No, absolutely, and you mention uh, friends and friends that we should be partnering with and trading with, and certainly one of those would be India. Uh, obviously, the Prime Minister has been in India, and you've also been in India over the past week. Um, can you, you know, share with us what you were doing in India, lessons learned, uh, any insights about the future of the Australian-India uh, relationship? Um, just interested in what you were doing there and share that with our, our viewers and listeners. Thanks, Dan. I was there for the Raisina Dialogue. Uh, in just a few short years, the Raisina Dialogue has become one of the world's great forums. Uh, we've all heard about the Davos Forum. Yep. Some of us have heard about the Bao Forum. Well, the Davos Forum uh, is very politically correct and I think it's a little intellectually pretentious if I may say so. The Bao Forum, which is uh, run under the auspices of the Chinese government, Yep. is basically a cheer squad for the Communist Party of China. Yep. Uh, the Raisina Dialogue, I've got to say, uh, there was no real party line as such. Um, there was a very eclectic group of people, yep. uh, very high-powered people, and it dealt with uh, trade, economics, defence, security, culture, science, um, Really a, a great forum and I was honoured to be there. I was there last year. I was thrilled to be invited back this year and I'd certainly encourage any senior Australian who has the chance uh, to go along to that Raisina Dialogue, uh, first because um, they'll, uh, I think, be intellectually stimulated and informed, second because uh, they'll meet a remarkable range of people and uh, Third, because it's a good window into how significant modern India is becoming. Mm. Uh, I've been saying for a long time now that India is the world's emerging democratic superpower. Uh, I've been saying for a long time now that uh, the world really needs a second democratic superpower. And I think the Ukraine war and the challenges across the Taiwan Strait are only highlighting that. Mm -hmm. um, it was interesting to see uh, in uh, the paper yesterday someone who uh, may well be Australia's finest cricket writer for some reason uh, taking it upon himself to launch an extraordinary attack on Narendra Modi, the Indian Prime Minister, calling him one of the world's great authoritarians and 
claiming that he led a, a fascistic, in inverted commas, government. Now, you wrote a letter. I did. I had a letter in the paper today uh, about this because, look, uh, I don't say that the Modi government is perfect and I don't say that um, the Bharatiya Janta Party, which he leads, uh, couldn't improve in some ways. All governments uh, might improve. All political parties could be better. But India is a riotous democracy. I mean, the three hallmarks of democracy are, uh, is there a... a free and diverse media? Uh, is there an independent um, and impartial judiciary? Uh, and are there free and fair elections? And um, India passes with flying colours on all counts. Now, I absolutely accept that the Modi government is very dominant in Delhi and the BJP is by far the strongest political party in India right now. But that's at least as much due to the deficiencies of Congress, which mm. was itself very dominant for several decades, but has now fallen into a kind of uh, dynastic uh, backwater. Yeah. Um, uh, but it's 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 not, in my view, due to any inherent authoritarianism uh, in the BJP or its leader. The other point to make about Modi is that he is a very good friend of this country's. Uh, his visit to Australia in 2014 was uh, a triumph. Um, he's obviously wildly popular amongst Australians of Indian background who are rightly proud of the way India has gone forward mm. under his leadership. And uh, Modi has led India out of many decades of strategic detachment and uh, non-alignment into the quad. Now, I keep saying that the quad is the most significant strategic development since the formation of NATO. Uh, it's not against anyone, but because it's for democracy, the rule of law and a rules-based international order, obviously it stands against any challenger or challenges to those things uh, and... I reckon that uh, uh, India has a real leadership role to play uh, in the decades ahead and uh, as I've more recently become accustomed to saying, if there is to be a leader of the free world um, decades hence, it could easily be uh, the Prime Minister of India as much as the President of the United States um, given the demography and given the fact that building on democracy the rule of law, and and a reasonable grasp of the world's common language, uh, I think India has vast economic potential mm. and will uh, one day be at least the economic equal of China. Mm. Now, just to um, close out the conversation today, Tony, you mentioned a, a moment ago that this government has been pretty good on defence and foreign policy matters, perhaps less so on domestic economic and, and social and energy matters. To what do you attribute that? Is it that the just the political landscape is such that they know that the Australian people won't tolerate any deviation from this course of action or is it that the, the quality of the bureaucracy and the defence and foreign policy establishment is better? Is it that they know Peter Dutton is known as a defence guy so they don't want to challenge him there? Is this what I'm getting at is you reckon this is just mostly a political type 
reason why they're continuing to go down the path laid down, starting with you and throughout the coalition government? Or is there sort of a genuine understanding in this government of, of the critical nature of our defence situation? I, I think there's uh, there's elements of everything. Uh, I think that um, a lot of people in the current government who might have been reflexively anti-American uh, 20 or 30 years ago have mellowed. Yep. Uh, I think that uh, whatever uh, economic errors uh, you and I might think they're guilty of, I think in their own way uh, they're genuine believers in freedom and pluralism uh, and plainly the democracies generally face a very strong challenge from authoritarian China and Russia and other aggressive revisionist states right now. So I think they look at what's happened in Hong Kong, they look at what's happening to the Uyghurs, yep. they look at this social credit system in China, they look at what's happened to people like Jack Ma, uh, they look at the constant belligerence uh, towards uh, free and liberal democratic Taiwan and, and they're alarmed. Uh, I don't think support for freedom, at least in a country like ours, is a left-right thing. I think support for freedom is broadly universal. Now, okay, um, you can support freedom um, if it's democracies versus autocracies yep. and perhaps still have a rather odd approach to it uh, in the circumstances of a pandemic. Yep. But nevertheless... Um, I, 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 not for a second would I accuse anyone in the current government of lacking patriotism. I think perhaps lacking wisdom, uh, lacking a degree of political integrity in terms of pre-election promises. But no, I would never accuse them of lacking patriotism. Well, it's very magnanimous <laughs> and gregarious of you, Tony. So I think on that note, uh, it's a great place to end. So again, thank you for your, your insights and for the chat today and uh, looking forward to keeping them going. Thanks, Dan. This is a production of the Centre for the Australian Way of Life at the Institute of Public Affairs. To find out more, visit australia.ipa.org.au.